Well, if you would, would you take your Bibles? Would you open to Leviticus 8 through 10? But let's look again at Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. I'll let the fuller reading that Wes did for us stand for the text, but I do want to reread one portion of this. So as you are able and willing, as is our custom, will you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Before I read, I'm going to pray for God's help. We pray to you, our good God and Father, asking that you might forgive all our faults and offenses and illuminate us by your Holy Spirit to have the true understanding of your holy word. Give us the grace that we need to handle it purely and faithfully to the glory of your holy name, for the edification of your church and for our salvation. We ask these things in the name of the only and blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So hear the word of the Lord. Leviticus 9, 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Please be seated. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word priest? What's the picture or the person or the image that jumps out? As I was thinking about this week, I realized that the depictions that kind of shade and color my mind come from pop culture, some... Or from books. So it jumped from G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown to Zosima from the Brothers Karamazov, but mostly Friar Tuck from specifically from the 1970s Robin Hood movie, which if your kids haven't seen that, you're parenting wrong. And it struck me that the depictions that I have in my mind, for whatever reason, of what a priest is, are simple, humble, down-to-earth men. Men that are just like the people around them. But maybe in your background, your experience, uh, what you think of when you think of a priest is something different. Maybe you have a Catholic background. Um, Or maybe the pop culture that you've uh, consumed gives you a different picture. Maybe what you think of is you think of someone with fancy clothes. You think of someone that's on a different plane of holiness. Somebody that's maybe just a little bit better than everyone else around them. And in many ways, that kind of an exalted view of a priest is more in line with what we're reading in our text tonight. The the priesthood of Aaron and his sons had the trappings of pomp and circumstance. Every piece of his uniform was meant to catch the eye, to draw the attention, but draw the attention away from him and upward and outward. So as we think of the purpose and the role of the priest, especially the high priest in the Levitical system, we can see why it's, this is an appropriate image set before the people. Now, as we've walked through Leviticus so far, remember we began with a problem. God called his people out of bondage from a foreign land where they were not dwelling with him. And in a display of his power and his might, he delivered them from bondage and then he brought them to his holy mountain, to Sinai. While at Sinai, he gave them instructions on how to live, and he had them build a tent for him to live in, and his presence came. God was with his people. But John mentioned it earlier. What was the problem? The Lord is in the tent of meeting, but no one, 
Not even Moses. Moses, the man that spoke face to face with God as if he were a friend. No one can go into the tent of meeting. Do you remember why? It was the corruption of sin. Sin was in the way. And so because of that, the Lord himself instituted sacrifices to solve this problem. So chapters 1 through 7, that's where we've been so far. We've seen all the sacrifices laid out by God. That's the solution to the corruption of sin coming in between God and his people. And tonight we get to see the inaction of those sacrifices. God has instructed and now Aaron and his sons are going to carry out the sacrifices for the people. So we have a tabernacle. It's a picture of a new beginning, a new Eden. And tonight we get to meet the new Adam who will live in the garden of God and keep it on behalf of the people. So in chapters 8 through 10, we get a glimpse of the covenant mediator standing between God and his people. But we know that this picture is not ultimate. And we'll know that by the time we get done tonight. Because the end of our passage tonight is actually a little bit of a cliffhanger. We've got the crisis of Israel's entrance coming into the Holy of Holies. And it's addressed uh, in the ordaining of the priests and the sacrificial system. But tonight there will be a new crisis that arises. And it will be addressed in the chapters going forward regarding laws, regarding cleanness and uncleanness. And it culminates in the Day of Atonement where the very dwelling place of God is cleansed from the pollution of sin. So after our time together tonight, my hope is that when you think of a priest, you think of our great high priest. I hope you think of Jesus. And I want to let you know on the front end, I don't have a lot of specific applications. So I'm going to give it to you right now, and then you can be thinking about it all throughout. So here are here's the application. Because of what we see in Leviticus 8 through 10, because of the mediation of our high priest, trust the Lord, hope in the Lord, and worship the Lord. All right, there's your application. Keep that in mind. There's a space for notes and outline in the back of the bulletin. And I've organized it with a heading for each chapter. So chapter 8, the priest's ordination is applied. Chapter 9, the priest's offering is accepted. And then for you type A people, so that I could keep the alliteration going, the punishment for an offense is adjudicated. So chapter 8, the priest's ordination is applied. Uh, And this section is going to be longer and more detailed for the other two, because this passage is a very detailed description of the ordination of these new priests. It was to be done in the sight of the people, and it was to be done under the direction of the word of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So 11 times in this chapter, we see a reference to the Lord speaking or the Lord giving a command. And in this chapter, it's actually Moses who's representing God. Moses is performing the ordination. He's giving the instructions throughout this ceremony. The Lord gives us explicit instructions. And we always look to his word for guidance. The things that are important enough for us to know and to obey, we find in the word of God. And we're called to carefully follow those. And and Moses, Moses doesn't add something to the ritual that he thinks might be a good idea. Moses isn't guessing at, oh, I wonder what God might want us to be doing as we ordain the priests. No, Moses has received the word of God. And in the ceremony, it's Moses delivering these words, but we actually see God speaking through Moses. 
And Moses and Aaron and the congregation listen and they obey. And it won't be long before Israel's confronted with the gravity of disobeying the word of God. We also see no one, not the people, not Aaron, not Moses himself, who represents God to the people. No one is above or outside of obedience to the revealed will of God. So now let's look at the ceremony itself. In verse 6, the ceremony begins with a washing. Moses takes Aaron and his sons and he washes them with water. He does this before they even put the garments on. Before they can even touch the priestly uniform that they're about to wear, they have to be purified and sanctified and set apart. Because these priests, in their own natures, are not unblemished. They are sinful and fallen men. They haven't been called and selected to the priesthood because they're somehow holier than everyone else. Not only did they have to be cleansed of their own unrighteousness... They also had to be washed from the pollution of the sin around them, the sin that was in the camp. They can't carry any bit of this sin into the presence of the holy God. So they're washed with water. And then verse 7, having been washed with water, Aaron is given new clothes. Elaborate, spectacular, opulent clothes. They match the tabernacle. The, the, The threads are the same. He is a man to stand in this place, and his clothes show that he matches that place. He's given a coat, he's given a sash, a robe, the ephod, the breast piece with the urim and thummim, a turban, and a crown with a front piece, reading holy to the Lord. And here we have a striking image. Because remember, Israel doesn't have a king, Israel doesn't have royalty, and Israel doesn't have nobility. In fact, the first man in Israel to wear a crown isn't Saul when he becomes king, but it's Aaron. Because Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. And if you think of Aaron standing in the middle of dusty, dirty, nomadic people, standing in this glorious clothing, he's going to stand out. In the middle of the crowd, you'll look out and you'll go, that guy, he must be important. Look at what he's wearing. And think about this. We're talking about a nation of redeemed slaves, right? They're brought out of Egypt. They have no homes. They have no land. And they're in the middle of the desert. Where did they get the means to put such luxurious trappings together for Aaron to wear? Remember in Exodus chapter 11. comes from the plunder of the Egyptians. As they're leaving town, the Egyptians give them their jewelry, their gold. They give them their riches. So the priest is dressed in these fine clothing. This fine clothing. And what he's wearing is a visible reminder of the deliverance of God. When the priest is standing in the presence of God, they know that his work will be effectual because he's wearing the evidence of God's deliverance of them. They have confidence in the work of the priest because God's already delivered his people. The clothes also represent mediation. The priests stand between the people and God. The shoulders of the ephod. The gemstones on the breastpiece, they had the names of the tribes of Israel written on them. So when Aaron goes into the presence of God and stands before him, he's not doing it for himself. He's carrying all of the people. The people are there communing with God through the mediation of the priest. We see that these garments teach us that holiness is glorious. It's beautiful. Holiness is to be admired. Holiness is to be adored and revered. It's to be sought after. 
as a kingdom of priests, Israel is to live up to the ideal that's represented in Aaron standing before them in all of the glorious garments. And lastly, we have the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't really know exactly what these things were. We don't really know exactly how they were used. But we do know that by using these, the priest would inquire of God and he would receive direction and revelation for the people. And that only the priest had the right to inquire and speak on behalf of the Lord in this way. So Aaron and his sons are clothed. The next step is an anointing in verse 10. And first, the tabernacle and everything in it are anointed with oil. The oil, of course, represents the Holy Spirit's power and presence, but also his claim on the tabernacle. This tent of meeting was the home of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was not the home of any other God. This was the home of the Lord of Israel. And not only the priests who are performing their duties, but even the means and the methods and the place that they perform these duties had to be set apart and blessed by God in order to be fruitful. And then Aaron himself is anointed with oil, or oil poured on his head, showing that the Lord has truly called him. The Lord will bless his ministry. The Lord will make this ministry fruitful. Because if the Holy Spirit does not meet with the ministry, then it's all for nothing. And then after the anointing, beginning in verse 14, offerings are given. And in this ordination ceremony, the priests aren't able to give the offerings yet. So Moses plays the part of the priests. And then the, the priests are the, play the part of the lay people. So first Moses gives a sin offering with Aaron and his sons laying their hands on the bull. And this identifies not only Aaron, but his male descendants with the work to which they're called. They are the set-apart line of priests. Moses takes the blood from this offering. He puts it on the altar. Because in the first sacrifice performed at this altar, even the altar itself needs atonement. It needed consecration so that it would be purified and set apart for the use it's intended for. After this, then Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the burnt offering. The altar has been purified, but now the priests need purification. They need offerings to make them pure. So this again underscores, these are mere men. They're as sinful as everyone else in the the camp of Israel. They're in just as much need of salvation as their brothers and sisters. And then finally, Moses makes a special kind of peace offering. And he does something a little strange. He takes blood from the peace offering and he puts some on the right ear and the right thumb and the right big toe of the new priests. In Jewish thought, the right side is considered the favored side. So not only is this offering claiming the best of the efforts and the gifting and the energy of Aaron and his sons, but it's also standing in for the whole person. The entire priest is now set apart Set apart to do the work that the Lord has commanded him to do. And if you think about the parts of the body that receive the blood, they're particular to the priest's vocation. One commentator explains it this way. The priest must have consecrated ears ever to listen to God's holy voice. Consecrated hands at all times to do holy deeds. And consecrated feet to walk evermore in his ways. So in this ritual, the priest from head to toe, is claimed by God for the ministry charged to him. 
And then the portion of the meat given to Aaron and his sons is eaten in the tabernacle. Because it's here. It's here in this newly constituted garden of God that their ministry is going to take place. And and isn't it interesting? The charge is to keep these commands so that they do not die. Not only does this emphasize the, the serious and the important nature of the vocations of these priests, but do you see the hints of Genesis 2 here? The tabernacle is a new garden. It's the place where God will dwell with man for the first time since Eden. In both instances, we've got a mediator. We've got Adam in the garden. We've got Aaron, the consecrated high priest at Sinai. In both places, there's a command regarding eating. Adam was limited on what he could eat. Aaron is limited on where he can eat. And the same root word actually shows up in both instances, shamar. In Genesis, it's translated as keep. Adam's job is to work and keep the garden. And here, in Leviticus, the same word is used to describe the work of the priests. It's in verse 35. The priests are to perform what the Lord has charged. And the threat to each, to both Adam and to Aaron, is if you fail to comply, you will die. This whole ritual is repeated each day for seven days. This whole liturgy over and over again. But unlike Adam, we're told Aaron and his sons did all the things commanded by God. And because of this, their ordination is approved. But all of this, this whole picture, ought to be drawing us beyond just the shadow that we find in Leviticus to the greater high priest that we find in the pages of the New Testament. The larger catechism describes the priesthood of Christ in this way, in question 44. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering himself as a sacrifice without spot to God to be reconciliation for the sins of the people and in making continual intercession for them. And Christ is not ordained into the Aaronic priesthood, but as we heard in our reading, as we studied in our Advent series last winter, he receives a commission directly from the Father who installs him as a priest forever in the eternal order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is therefore a better priesthood than the shadow that we have in Leviticus. And yet, Jesus still underwent a public ceremony, just like Aaron, where Jesus was set apart for his priestly ministry. If you're going through the chronological reading, you just read this this last week. Instead of Moses, John the Baptist oversaw this ceremony at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. So consider the comparisons and the contrasts here between Aaron and Jesus. So at Sinai in the wilderness, Moses gives the law, and the law prepares the way for the priestly work. John the Baptist, he is the voice in the wilderness, preaching law and preparing the way for the Lord, the great high priest. At Sinai, Moses gathers together the leaders of the people, and they watch the ordination proceedings. And at Jordan, John attracted a crowd, but who especially showed up in that crowd? It was the leaders and the teachers of the law responsible for Israel. At Sinai, Moses hears instruction from the Lord. Moses performs the consecration rites to Aaron and his sons. At Jordan, John receives instruction from the Lord. Jesus says, I must be baptized by you. And then John performs the consecration consecration rite to Christ. And at Sinai, Aaron and his sons are washed with water. 
which shows cleansing from guilt and consecration to their service. At Jordan, Christ has no need to be cleansed from guilt, but he tells John why he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and it sets him apart for his ministry. At Sinai, Aaron is anointed with oil, which signifies the Spirit's power and presence and makes his priesthood effectual. And at Jordan, the Spirit descends as a dove onto Jesus, which displays that his ministry is to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. At Sinai, Moses offers a sacrifice on Aaron's behalf to cover his sin, to make him pure to stand before the Lord on the people's behalf. But at Jordan, Jesus has no need for a sacrifice. Remember what John says? Here, here is the lamb. He is the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. At Sinai, the priests eat the fellowship meal. And this displays to the people that because of atonement, they have fellowship with God. But at Jordan, Jesus goes from there into the wilderness. And he does not eat, even when he's tempted, because he already has fellowship with God. His bread is to do the will of the Father. And because of this, he can make atonement for the people. And this Jesus, his priesthood is better. We see him described in Revelation 1, standing among the lampstands, wearing a robe and a sash. He is now face to face with his Father, always interceding on behalf of his people. It's he who is the great high priest that we see in the shadows of Leviticus 8. And it's him to whom we must look. For salvation. So what are some implications of these truths that we see in Leviticus 8? First, I want us to consider the clothes we've been given. We have been robed with the righteousness of Christ. We are covered with the splendor of his holiness. Aaron's glorious attire has nothing on what we are wearing spiritually. And that fact should spur us on to live holy lives. Think about this. What what if Aaron put on the undergarment, put on the robe, put on the ephod, the breast piece, slipped on his turban, and put on his crown, and then went out dressed like this into the pasture to scoop sheep manure? How inappropriate would that be for him to use his luxurious, glorious clothing in that way? How much worse then when we, clothed with the righteousness of the Son of God, turn away from our high calling to holiness... And turn to the corruption of sin. Brother and sister, you wear the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're called to service in his kingdom. So let let us all remember that truth and strive for the holiness that's been put on display for us. And a second implication, both as a church, but also in our individual lives, is that we must remember that our efforts at anything at all will prove fruitless unless the Holy Spirit is working to bless them. The tabernacle wasn't a fruitful place for ministry until the Holy Spirit, represented by the anointing oil, blessed it and set it apart. So how wonderful is it for us as a church that we can trust through the simple means of grace, through word and water, bread, wine, and through prayer and song and fellowship that God promises by His Spirit to accomplish His purpose And he will live with us. So the priests were ordained. Aaron and his sons do all that they're told. And it's time to offer the offerings. Offer the sacrifices. And their offerings are accepted. 
Most of the chapter that we're looking at now, chapter 9, most of this should sound familiar. This is what we've been looking at for six weeks. All of the commands about sacrifices Aaron and his sons carry out. And for the most part, they're carried out in the exact way that we've seen in chapters 1 through 7. But I want to draw our attention to one slight difference, because we may miss it if we're not careful. So remember from chapter 4, what was the animal that was offered as a sin offering? Verse 3, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull and adult from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. But chapter 9, it's slightly different. In verse 2, Moses tells Aaron to take for himself a bull calf as his offering. And this is the only time this phrase is used in scripture to describe an animal to be sacrificed to the Lord. And if you remember Aaron's past, you know both the irony and the suitability of this sacrifice. Remember, in Exodus 32, Moses goes to the top of the mountain. He receives the law from God. And the people say, we don't know what's become of Moses. Make for us a God. And what does Aaron do? In his first illegitimate act as priest of the people, he makes a statue of a bull calf and offers sacrifices on the people's behalf to it. So now, God calls him, in his first legitimate act as the priest of the people, to sacrifice a bull calf on his own behalf in view of the people. This shows us two things. First, it shows us not even seven days in the tabernacle is enough to make Aaron holy. Even today, as he's beginning his public ministry, his sins must be cleansed. He needs forgiveness. But second... See the grace of God on display. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. And we often see the Lord restores his servants in specific and meaningful ways. Think about Christ when he restores Peter. Peter denies him three times. And what what does Jesus do in order to restore him? He draws out of him a threefold confession of his faith and his love for his Lord. This is a similar restoration that's taking place in Aaron's sacrifice. It serves both as a reminder of the failures of the past and and the dangers of taking matters into our own hands in worship. But it also alleviates any remaining doubt that it's in the mind of Aaron or it's in the minds of the people. That this is the man that God has. This is who the Lord has set apart for this ministry. Aaron the priest had brought guilt upon the people by making a calf. And now by the blood of the calf, the Lord removes that guilt. So his people are reconciled to him. So after making atonement for himself, the high priest is finally able to sacrifice for the people. Aaron and his sons here offer every type of offering except the reparation offering, which is the sacrifice for a specific offense. And just like we saw, the priest needed to be purified before he could even offer a sacrifice on his own behalf. Now the people need general purification before they can each bring their own offerings before the Lord. So Aaron completes this sacrificial work and now, on the basis of the atonement, can turn and speak God's blessing on God's people. And then for the first time, the high priest enters the tent of meeting along with Moses and intercedes on behalf of the people. We've said several times so far that Leviticus is is written to answer the question, who may ascend the Lord's mountain? Who may live in his tent? And here we have an answer. 
He whose sin is atoned for, he who is set apart for holiness, he who keeps the Lord's commands. Aaron may ascend and enter the tent, and as he does so, he represents the holy, consecrated people of God. When Moses and Aaron come out, they speak another blessing on the people, and then the moment that they've been waiting for all day, in fact, all week for the eight days, that moment comes. The glory of the Lord descends Fire comes from heaven and consumes the offering. You want to talk about an assurance of pardon? Imagine what they felt. The Lord put his stamp of approval on all the proceedings, and Aaron's priesthood is fully established. Notice, though, the Lord doesn't arrive until the offerings were given. The people needed to be sanctified by the offering before the fire of the Lord could appear to them. But he appears in glory in response to his people gathered together. In response to the atoning sacrifice, and in response to their careful careful obedience in response to him. And that fire is the one we heard last week. The fire that fell from heaven is continually kept burning by the priests in the tabernacle. And it reminds them that the Lord is dwelling with his sanctified people. Israel responds in the only appropriate way. They shout in worship and fall down on their faces. The glory of the Lord demands both praise and humility from his creatures. So here again, in chapter 9, we see glimpses of the greater priest, don't we? Like Aaron, Christ gives a sacrifice that covers all for whom it is made. And like Aaron, God has accepted the sacrifice of our high priest. And we, we have assurance of atonement greater than anything that Israel ever could have. After making sacrifice, Christ didn't enter into a tent of meeting, but he returned to heaven. The tent of meeting was patterned after the throne room of God. And and Christ goes face to face with the Father to intercede for his people. What happens at Pentecost? Christ returns to intercede, and the evidence of the acceptance of his sacrifice comes as the fire of God fell. This time, not to consume the sacrifice, but on the people themselves so that they would be living sacrifices. Church, Jesus' mediation for us has been accepted. Of this, we can be sure. However, as we look at chapter 10, all doesn't end well in our story tonight. The very same day that the ministry of Aaron culminates in the Lord descending in glory, we have a tragic failure by the priests. And it throws into peril the entire priesthood, the entire sacrificial system. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We're not given much detail as to what exactly Nadab and Abihu did, just that they offered strange fire. But we do see, for the first time in three chapters, we hear someone did as the Lord had not commanded them. Throughout the ordination of Aaron and his sons, during that first round of consecrating sacrifices for the people, Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel have been careful to obey by doing only and exactly as the Lord has instructed. And, and notice what the text does not say. 
doesn't even say that Nadab and Abihu directly disobeyed God. It doesn't say they did not do as the Lord commanded. Their sin was a sin of addition, of creativity, of arrogance, of indulgence. And, and far from bringing him more honor, they have dishonored the Lord by devising their own worship. And that's why Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. This passage highlights again for us the grave seriousness of meeting with the living God. Because the same consuming fire that accepted the sacrifices that were given as the Lord had commanded is now the same consuming fire that lays waste to impurity when it comes face to face with him. In offering the incense, the pollution of sin has come into the tent of meeting and gone behind the veil into the immediate presence of God. And when that happens, the incinerating holiness of God eviscerates it. This is the holiness that caused Isaiah to cry out, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So, so when we read this passage, let us not be tempted to think that this is an overreaction on the part of God. These priests are offering a false offering that has not been commissioned by God to cover them. So their sinfulness is exposed directly to his holiness, and that can only end in their death. And, and this passage, along with others, is what we in the Reformed tradition have used to develop what we call the regulative principle of worship. When we gather as God's people to worship God, we only do the things that he has commanded. We're not free to invent our own worship elements. We're not free to address God as we desire. And, and I think this may be difficult for us because we live in a democratic and an egalitarian culture. And, and we don't have the same appreciation for reverence for a superior that basically every other culture throughout the history of the world has had. So let me say, the sovereign Lord of the universe has every right to command us how to worship him. And we as his people are to obey. Our worship is not joyless. At least I hope it isn't for you. It's not for me. But it is serious business. It's not a time to be frivolous. It's not a time to be flippant. As Mr. Beaver says about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, our God is not safe, but he is good. And as the people's mediator, when his own sons die, Aaron is silent. He doesn't question the Lord's judgment against his sons. In fact, Aaron and his surviving sons are forbidden from mourning Nadab and Abihu. Because this day was the Lord's day. This was the day to be celebrating the Lord in his glory, and the Lord will not allow his glory to be diminished. The people, the people are allowed to mourn so that they can fully appreciate the holiness of God, and so that this reminder stays with them of the consequences of straying away from the Lord's direction. The dead bodies are carried out of the tabernacle, and, and where are they taken? Outside the camp. Just like the useless remains of the sacrifices. Because the bodies of these men are polluted by sin, and that pollution has now reached the innermost parts of the tent of meeting. And then, for the last point we'll look at tonight in verse 8. God speaks directly to Aaron for the only time in Scripture. 
The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken them by Moses. So now, the priests not only perform these rituals on behalf of the people, but they're going to make judgments and applications of the laws. They're going to teach the people how to do the same. That vocation requires attention and sobriety. While on duty, nothing can impair the priest so he doesn't make the same mistake as Nadab and Abihu. And this serves as the new problem that we'll look at in the next six chapters. The dwelling place of God is now polluted by sin. And the solution comes in the Lord giving instructions to discern between clean and unclean, followed by instruction on how to cleanse the house of God on the Day of Atonement. It took less than a day for man to defile what God had spent a week making holy. The entire sacrificial system, the magnificence of the high priest, the glory of the Lord descending in view of all the people, all of it is in danger of being for nothing because the mediators have failed. Here at Sinai, these priests, at their highest point of spiritual strength, fed by the fellowship meals of God, don't last a single day in their duty before a catastrophic failure in their ministry. But Christ... After Jordan, weakened by 40 days of fasting, is tempted directly by Satan and obeys God's word perfectly on our behalf. And that, that, brothers and sisters, is why we can't look at Aaron as ultimate. We could learn to worship God only as he has commanded. We can take our worship seriously. We can pursue holiness and live separate from the world. And yet it will never be enough. Because we will eventually fail. In our sinfulness, we cannot stand uncovered in the presence of a holy God. So I urge you, look at this picture we've seen of a priest. But then look beyond. Look to him who's described in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Or, as we sang earlier, before the throne of God above... I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God, the just, was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Brothers and sisters, friends, behold the great high priest. Place your hope and your trust in him alone. And worship our God with your whole heart. Will you pray with me? Our Father, your grace is magnificent. Your love is magnificent. Your holiness drops us to our knees. 
But we thank you that we have a priest that stands between. We thank you that we have a sacrifice that covers us completely. Would you give us hope? Would you, by your spirit, spur us on to live in light of what you have done for us through the ministry of Jesus Christ? And would you assure us when we feel weak that we have been cleansed and forgiven and we will be accepted when we meet you? It's in the name of Jesus and him alone that we can pray. Amen.